I just don't believe what's happening. I can't believe you kids want to do that. I mean, go up there 10, 11,000 feet, walk all day long till you got sores and bunions and blisters. You come to a beautiful creek or a rushing stream, you can't drink out of it. You got to take the canteen, put it in there and drop an ugly pill in it. Turns it kind of red, you know, to kill all the bacteria. You drink the water and it tastes like iodine. You're looking at snow-capped peaks, and here and there some trout in the lakes and all of that. Your back is, you're going backpacking. You realize what that means? Everything you own, every bite of food, everything you're going to sleep in, on, or under is on your back. And you're talking about walking miles and miles, clear up there, 10, 11, 12,000 feet. At the end of the day, here's the way you look. Mm, you know, I look that way every morning when I get up because I golf a lot and I've got a sore lower back. The only thing I don't like about all this is that I don't get a chance to go. I can't get, I can't go with you. I wish I could. That's the only thing wrong with it. I think it's a wonderful opportunity. It really is sort of an outgrowth of our summer educational program of many, many years ago that we began clear back in about 1960 up at Big Sandy that grew into the summer educational program at Orr, Minnesota. And as an adjunct to that, Guy Carnes began starting a challenger program where a lot of our youngsters would go in the same kind of a program that even the military had used and the Air Force and other people for survival type training where two men or even one man and when you graduated to the ultimate degree one person would simply be parachuted in or would be put out somewhere in some vast wilderness and would be told to disappear for I guess a couple of weeks or a month to be totally alone and to live off the land and through somewhere in some vast wilderness and would be told to disappear for, I guess, a couple of weeks or a month to be totally alone and to live off the land and through dendrology and the identification of various herbs and roots and berries and leaves and maybe even to make his own snares or to fashion his own bow and arrow with his own hands, had absolutely nothing but his own hands and maybe a sheath knife, and that was it. And it was a survival training course of how a person can live not against nature, or against the animals and creatures, but with it, and in harmony with it. And instead of being terrified by it, to be in tune with it and to know exactly how to use it and how to survive and how to make the wilderness your friend. I've always wanted to do that. Well, thankfully, to some small degree, although if you saw our camp, you'd think I was cheating, because when we go hunting, we got a great big tent half the size of this stage, it looks like, with a big butane bottle and a big grill. Looks like we can start a quick food restaurant and serve hamburgers like McDonald's um, in our hunting camp. And we've got a great big rack of canned goods and groceries up there, and we live pretty well when we go hunting. Well, this fall, I have an opportunity. I'm going to go with my son Matthew and Charlie Gross, and uh, we're going to go with a member of ours who lives up in the area of the Colorado Valley, the San Juan Valley, near the Sangre de Cristo Range in Colorado. Every year he goes out and kills a huge big bull elk with a bow and arrow. So I've been out in my yard practicing with a bow and arrow, and I've got myself a foam deer, an actual life-size deer. Now, I know some of you are going to think, oh, that's terrible. This brute would kill Pauline or Bambi. If Bambi was running around in the woods, he would shoot the poor deer. Well, 
you know, God says, you shall eat the hearty beef uh, and the robots and all of these, and you just can't kill them with a loaf of white bread and ball-peen hammer. They don't come that close, you know. It, they tend to run from you. And uh, uh, we have venison, and we have some uh, antelope in our locker. We eat wild meat probably twice a week at my home. And we have, for just about all of our marriage, I've always been able, uh, been blessed to be able to bring home some game. And my wife and I have enjoyed that for many, many years. So I hope to do it again. Every day is filled with opportunities. Every day, every hour is filled with choices that we make. In Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter, in verse 15, God says, See, I've set before you this day. Now, you can say that to yourself really every morning you wake up, because that's what the day consists of. This day, tomorrow, the next day. I have set before you this day life. I'll just stop right there. Life. I like that. I've had a lot of opportunities in life. Just the other day, I heard some sad news. A friend of mine, with whom I played some hands of cards, played a few rounds of golf, lost his wife about a year and a half or so ago, old Ray McMillan. Ray was getting on up in years. He was probably up 75 or 6. Very poor health. In the last year or so, living alone without his wife, he had to walk with the aid of one of these walkers which is like a little, you know, conchin or a bracket and with four legs on it made of tubular stainless aluminum, very lightweight, and he would pick it up, put it down, take about one shuffling step. And if you've ever seen old people with one of these aids to keep them from falling, because if they were to fall at that age, their bones are brittle, it would break their hip and they would simply die in terrible pain. Well, Ray went down to one of the downtown funeral parlors here on Thursday, right down here at Floyd Dolan, whoever it was, walked in made all of his arrangements, signed the papers, and paid the bill. Walked out into the parking lot, lot, had a brand new Cadillac, didn't want to mess it up or make any trouble for anybody, so he got a blanket out of the trunk and lay down in the parking lot and shot himself to death with a 38 pistol. They buried him yesterday. This morning I saw out at his garage some of his relatives and people were there going through all of the things that Ray had left. See, I've set before you this day life and good. But sometimes because of choices that people have made and the emptiness of their lives, their diet, their lack of exercise, their lack of physical health, life itself is no longer good. It is empty. It's boring. In his case, it was even painful because he was in physical pain. He'd had one lung removed years before. And when he talked, he was sort of like that. He had to start to say, good morning, Deb because he would squeeze every bit of air that he could get out of that one lung, and it would just barely activate the vocal cords to let us understand what he was saying. It's very lonesome. I felt guilty. felt very guilty when I heard about Ray the day before yesterday. You know why I felt guilty? Now, think about it. Why would you feel guilty? He's just a casual friend. I didn't know him really well. I don't know anything at all about his family. I just knew him to say, hi, Ray, and we played golf a time or two or three a few years ago when he was a little better shape. Well, I'll tell you why I felt guilty. If I'd have known that he was that lonesome, it would have been no skin off my nose at all when I was going to go over, cross the bridge to pick up something to drink, or if I was going to come into town for some casual visit to stop by and say, hey, Ray, you got anything to do today? How would you like to go with me? I'm just going into town for a little while, and I'll be back in about an hour. Or I could have called him on the phone a couple, three times a week 
I could have gone to his house in some evenings when there's no TV and I was bored looking for something to read or something to do and said, hey, Ray, how about a game of cards? I just didn't think of it because I thought he had his friends, he had his circle of acquaintances, and I wasn't included in those. So I heard about Ray. I felt pangs of guilt. And I talked to a couple of other guys in Emerald Bay, and they felt the same way because they felt ashamed of themselves that they hadn't gone out of their way to take the time to give this elderly gentleman some company. See, I've set before you this day life and good. Every single day, there it is out in front of you, life and good, good life, a lot of fun and happiness and reward. And, on the other hand, death and evil. On the roadway out here is life in the right lane, at the right speed, under control, without alcohol or drugs, passing only when it is safe, with your eyes on the road, your attention undivided, obeying the laws of the land. And on the left side of that road, approaching at 65, will be thousands of semis and trucks and trailers and vans and jeeps and private automobiles. And some of those people will not be obeying the speed law. And they will have some alcohol in their bodies. And some of them will be on drugs. So you can't always even depend upon yourself. Sometimes it's the other person you have to be aware of. But I know some people, including my poor dead brother who died in 1958, who was a victim of a man who was driving and didn't pay attention that he'd been on a four-lane divided highway, but there was some, some construction that had closed the lanes they were in. And he just went right on and was back on a two-lane road and didn't realize it and was driving in the left lane. And all of a sudden, here was a big semi-truck, 18-wheeler, right in front of him. He tried to leave the roadway on this side. My brother was sitting in the right front seat. All that did was let my brother take the full impact. It threw him clear of the car, crushed his hip, shot his stomach up and replaced his heart by pushing it to the right side of his chest, crushed his elbow, crushed his jaw. He lived for one week in great agony and died in 1958 as a result of what someone else did and it wasn't his fault. I've had some great opportunities in my life. God says here, he sets these choices before us in that I command thee this day to love the eternal your God. Now why would you love God? Well, get up there and take a look at a blue spruce tree. Take a look at a brook trout. Look at all those beautiful birds. Hope to see a herd of elk or a herd of deer. The next time you eat, like this evening, if you get a hold of the leg of fried chicken, if it tastes good to you. Somebody tells a funny story and you just laugh and feel very good and you're really filled with a lot of feelings of camaraderie and fun, having friends around. If life is good, if life is enjoyable, well, who gives you life? And who made all of these creatures? And who causes the sun to shine? And who makes all the green things to grow and gives us the food, the water to drink? It satisfies our palate and our taste. It makes us feel so good when we wake up in the morning and fill our lungs with fresh mountain air and get that desire to hit the trail and see some more of that natural beauty. It's not difficult to love God because God made so many wonderful things. He made us. He gave us our lives. He gives us love. He gives us caring and sharing. He gives us every possible emotion 
at every extreme except the ones that Satan the devil has as his private property, which are enmity and jealousy and hatred and greed and vanity, but now forgiveness and giving and sharing and hope and rejoicing and courage and faith and love, all of these, God owns those, and he gives us those. To walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply rules, commandments, statutes, judgment. Sounds like a lot of bad words. Let me try to make them good words. I've had some wonderful opportunities in my life. I always wanted to fly when I was a kid. The first time I ever got a hold of an airplane, I was 16. Never forgotten it. The guy just told me to keep the horizon level out there, and I was a hold of that stick like this and trembling with both hands and flying an airplane. Well, years later, I had a chance to begin to fly as a student pilot right up here at Big Sandy. And then I flew a 182. A little later on, I had the opportunity to get a hold of a twin-engine 310. Oh, that was exciting, looking out and down and saying, I'm doing this. I'm at the controls of a twin-engine airplane that can go about 220 miles an hour. Boy, it felt so powerful when it took off. I had to learn how to handle those controls. I had to learn exactly how to switch from the auxiliary to the main tank and where the fuel boost pumps were, which buttons and dials and gauges to push and which ones not to which ones were the throttles, which ones were the feathering apparatus on the engine, or the propeller, I should say, which would mean the propeller would not propel the airplane forward, but just be turning like a useless fan, where the fuel cutoff was. People have made silly mistakes. There was another man that began to learn to fly about the same time I did. He was a minister, too. And one time, with a group of people aboard coming into an airport up in Washington, he was flying a Mooney. And that particular model of a single-engine aircraft insists that upon landing, because you only have the boost pump in the main tank, that you switch from an auxiliary tank to the main tank. He was still on the auxiliary tank and didn't know it. And just short of the airport, beautiful approach, nice smooth landing in progress, the engine quit. The airplane quit flying, the wheels touched down in a big ditch, tore the undercarriage out, and they slid for a few hundred yards on their belly, just about totaled out the airplane, and all four of them walked away from it. He made a mistake. He didn't follow the commandments, statutes, and judgments that are clearly posted in the handbook from the manufacturer and the placard of limitations inside the cockpit that said, Warning, always select main tank for takeoff and landing because he got talking to somebody. He was showing what a great flyer he was. Hey, isn't it fun? Man, look, I'm flying this airplane. Probably some girls aboard. I don't know what's going on. Inattention, he wiped out an airplane. He could have killed everybody. He didn't. And that was nice. But sometimes, and once in a while we hear of it in the news, you really can't do anything but your very best, and even then it isn't good enough. Like day before yesterday, up over Sioux City, Iowa, a pilot did his best, and it wasn't good enough. Because when that rear engine blew out of that DC-10, some portions of the metal went down and severed some of the main hydraulic lines, and the hydraulically boosted controls in these large jets are not unlike the jet aircraft that I flew for nine years, called a Dassault DA-20, or a Falcon jet, DA-20. And you have a yoke, and you turn it this way, and it turns the ailerons and makes this wing drop and makes the other one rise, and the airplane starts to go around. Well, there are little lines that you see, like little blue tubes, 
all through the aircraft that have a fluid in it that cannot be compressed in the same way that air can. And they're little pistons, sometimes very large pistons, pushing against a tiny column. And I won't explain all the principles of hydraulics, but it's very, very simple, really. But a very light weight on a very large cylinder into a small tube with a uh, kind of a plunger there can push with a very light little bit of energy on your part, a tremendous weight at the other end of the tube. They have an artificial field unit, which is electrically controlled. And when I would turn the yoke, all that was doing was sending an electrical signal. And actually what turned those ailerons or the rudder or the elevators back here were those little hydraulic lines that pushed them with fluid pushing on fluid. Now something would come along and rupture those lines, that fluid would explode at who knows how many thousand pounds per square inch and just spew out of the line. There's no way for me to move those controls anymore, is there? Well, this poor pilot is up there with about 300, I guess, people aboard. And he could not turn to his right. He'd lost most of his hydraulic control. He may have had that yoke cranked all the way over to here to the stop. And it's going to affect the way the aircraft turns based upon its speed. The faster it is, the more under control it may be because of that speed providing lift. When he turned to his left and made a very gradual descent, he got right over the threshold but apparently began chopping the power because he had to slow down enough to try to land the airplane. And at the last moment, the airplane went about 10 or 12 degrees nose down and about 10 or 12 degrees right wing low. And that big wing touched the ground and of course just ripped it. Well, the wings of jet aircraft are filled with fuel cells. And there were tens of thousands of pounds of kerosene in there. And those white hot engines that burn at over 700 degrees centigrade. And it just blew up. And you've seen it already on television, haven't you? The portion of the fuselage is tumbling. You know, every one of those survivors owes his life to the professionalism, the skill, and the heroism of that pilot. Don't think for one minute about the people who died being victims of a pilot who didn't do what he should. Oh, no. Because this was something totally beyond the pilot's control. When the rear engine blew out, it ruptured those lines. He didn't have the boosted control system, and there was just nothing more he could do. When I flew that DA-20, I was looking at the most super sophisticated cockpit in corporate jet aviation at that time, with dual INSs, with everything that you could imagine for safe navigation, with every conceivable gauge and dial to tell me exactly what the external pressure ratio was, what the fuel flow was, what kind of fuel was in the tank, what the pressurization system was doing to give me 8.3 PSI inside the cabin so I'm at 39,000 feet, but my body and the way I'm breathing air thinks I'm only at about 8,000 feet. And I'm comfortable, just like I was in Mexico City on the ground, but I'm at 39,000 feet because that air has been pumped into that monocoque capsule up there in the air, and it's pushing out at 8.3 pounds per square inch. Now take that time one little windshield, 8.3 times the square or the diameter and the other diameter of a window. And look at how many pounds you're dealing with. You know that a team of eight huge horses, if they had a handle on it, could not drag that window out of that airplane. It's so powerful. But me, sitting there with my hands, and in front of me are all kinds of switches, including emergency fuel cutoff, including, including throttle and all kinds of switches, any one of which 
if I were to just bump with my knees at the wrong time, could cause a terrible disaster. I didn't want a disaster. I wanted both the thrill and the utility of a safe flight aboard a Fanjet Falcon clear across the Atlantic. The day that I flew the Grumman Gulf Stream 2 back from the Philippines and landed on Wake Island with beauty of that South Pacific and seeing the fluffy little clouds hanging around that island that figured so prominently in World War II history, of which I had read for so many years, and the thrill of setting that big beast of an airplane down on that runway and flying it all over Australasia and the Philippines, all the way to Perth and Darwin and up to Hong Kong and back to Manila, taking off and landing hundreds of times in aircraft. And when I last checked my log after all of these years and counted them all up, I had flown 68 types of aircraft and 11 different types of jets. And not once did I ever get tempted to reach up and just grab a hold of some button or dial, even if I was new to the airplane and didn't understand it, and say to myself, I wonder what will happen if I just turn that. Not once. Here I am, I'm alive. I've never crashed an airplane, thanks be to the eternal God, but I've never had the desire to do so. Last winter, it snowed. It snows in Tyler, Texas. It snowed now three times in 11 years since I've lived here. And I was looking out my window at the beautiful winter wonderland, and here came a kid in a long army coat and old sneakers and a kind of a stocking cap pulled down over his head. And I thought, isn't that nice? He's pulling a sled. What could be nicer? Here's one of the neighbor kids, grandkid, obviously. That's a kind of an old community. And he's out there enjoying the snow, just having a marvelous time. Well, he walks across the bridge, and we've got street signs that are made of wood with wonderful wooden kind of rustic-looking street signs that tell you which street is which. The kid parked the sled and walked over to the street sign, and he began to pull on it. He's trying to twist it out of the ground, trying to destroy it. I'm saying, wait a minute. Why isn't he on the bridge enjoying the sled? He's trying to uproot the street sign. So I called the security gate. Let me tell you why I called the security gate. Number one, I got to help pay for that street sign because they will levy me and the other club members for that kind of damage. Number two, though I was tempted to stick my head out the front door and holler down there at him and say, Hey, you, what do you think you're doing? Would anybody like to just think about why... I didn't do that because, you see, I knew by his actions that he was, as you say, on something, okay? Knowing that that is true, if I were to upset him, I leave my wife at home oftentimes when I'm on a trip. I would be looking at something that you could not begin to imagine. So I kept my face indoors, and I thought, I'll let the security people handle it. Well, I didn't get there in time. I saw him a little later on, and he had come across the bridge and was over there on one of the ladies' tea boxes, and he was trying to rinse the ball washer, which for golf balls and so on, out of the ground, trying to destroy it. He was like one of these things I heard about years ago in a pet shop called a booger. And the guy walked in, and he said, what in the world is that? It was a kind of a fluffy-looking thing. It looked like a, a, an Eskimo muckluck. It just looked like a whole bunch of fur. And the guy said, well, that's a booger. He said, what do you mean a booger? What's a booger? Where's it from? He said, well, let me show you. He got an old stool. He put it on a stool. He says, booger that stool. And that thing sounded like a Tasmanian devil in high gear. Just sounded like a middle of a bug saw. And just one moment or two, that stool was reduced to ashes, just sawdust, just destroyed it. 
He said, well, what do you know about that? I've never saw anything like that before in my life. So he said, I'll tell you what, that'd be quite a pet. I'm going to buy him. So he bought the booger. only cost him about $29.95. He bought him, took him home, and he threw the thing down in the living room rug, and there it was sitting there, and his wife came in, looked at it, and she said, what in the world is that? He said, that's a booger. She said, booger my foot. Well, he recovered. But that kid reminded me of a booger because everything he touched he wanted to destroy. He was making wrong choices in what he was sniffing or what he was ingesting or what he was putting inside his body in one way or another. That's never tempted me because, thankfully, I survived teenage with the only difficulty being that I contracted, with very great difficulty, the smoking habit. It wasn't easy to become a smoker. It hurt. It was very painful. But I had a powerful incentive. I wanted, at age 14, to make all the other 14-year-olders think that I was actually 22. So the way to do it was go to the store across the street from the school and get an older kid to sneak me out a pack of cigarettes, stick one in my face and stand around. You know what everybody saw? What do you think people said when they saw me standing there? Little Teddy, I was real short for my class. I didn't grow up until I was in the Navy. I'm about 5'4 or so. And uh, you know what they thought? The older people, look at that stupid little kid with a cigarette in his mouth. You know what the older, older kids thought? Look at that dumb little kid trying to act older. You know what the 14-year-olders thought? They thought, look at that stupid kid trying to pretend that he's older than we are. Nobody was impressed, and I was in pain. And finally somebody said, Teddy, you're cheating. I said, I am not. They said, you are so. I've never seen you inhale. I was standing on a street corner. I can tell you right exactly where it was. So same building, still there in Eugene, Oregon. I said, I am too inhaling. They said, prove it. Let me see you. So I went, and I mean, I had to sit down on the curb. It just absolutely destroyed me. I was so sick and so busy. The whole world was going around. My lungs thought they were going to burst. That was my first time I'd ever inhaled. Well, eight years later, I was still inhaling. I stuck with it. I was determined to be bad. But finally, under the agony, and that is a long story I won't go into, of literally months and praying and trying to change associations, quitting the bowling league, my wife helping with a lot of advice, uh, <laughs> sometimes more than just advice, uh, I was thankfully able to break the cigarette habit. But it took a lot longer to break it, and it didn't learn it. But it was just about as painful either way. It wasn't something I just stumbled into naturally. You don't just learn to smoke because it tastes good or smells good the first time. I had to force myself to get into that bad habit. Wrong choice. I hope now my lungs are pink after all of those many, many years of not smoking. But if you advise someone, don't smoke, you're going against a lot of peer pressure and a lot of other things like the ads and the motion pictures and so many other powerful influences that say, smoke. Well, God says, but if your heart turn away so that you will not hear, but shall be drawn away and worship other gods, that is, follow other influences, listen to other pressures, dance to different tunes, and serve them, I denounce unto you this day that you shall surely perish, and that you shall not prolong your days upon the land, whether you go over Jordan to possess it. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. Now, you will make a choice. There is no way that anyone here 
is going to avoid making a choice. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, and 52, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This body cannot survive fire. There are a hundred and some people who did not survive that crash up there. Most of them were burned to death. Many of them died in the impact. And that is a terrible, terrible thing to contemplate. The Bible tells me that the time is going to come when God will be through with this physical world as an environment for man, for his prototypes who are intended to be begotten. fervent heat, and there will be no more sea, it says, in the vision of the new earth and the new heavens, back in the last couple of chapters of the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22. There was no more sea, and there was no more earth in the way that we know it today, but just like molten rock or metal. And at that time, only spirit beings who live in a completely different dimension, not human flesh, not physical beings at all. He says, if we do not obey the laws which are put there for our good, for our blessing, for our benefit, which he calls life and good, then we will inherit death and evil. That's a localized thunderstorm with a little bolt of lightning, and God is saying that's right. He is saying, pay attention. I want to ask you a question, campers, right now. This just reminds me of something I wanted to say. Okay, you're up in the top of the Rockies, right? You're walking along a trail and a thunderstorm comes in, and they are bound to come in this time of the year. The summer, they percolate every day. I've been up there, and I've backpacked, and I know what I'm talking about. Now, if you're up on a big old meadow, and out in the middle of the meadow is one nice, luscious, thick tree, and it's starting to rain and blowing pretty good, and the lightning is banging around, what do you want to do? Run for the tree and get under it, right? Good for you. Everybody's shaking their head, no. All right, that's, that's the smart ones. You listen to them. They know what they're talking about. You find a little declivity in an open area and lie down in it if it's really close and coming close and you get out of that pack if you got any metal in it at all and lie down i don't care how wet and how cold you get and if you are standing or walking along and you feel prickly and all of a sudden your hair starts to stand up shuck that pack and lie down now because those negative ions or however they explain it are starting to build up around that area and there is a lightning strike that is imminent in that area. I'm glad that I was reminded of that. That must have been an important reminder for something I wanted to tell you. There are rules, aren't there? And rules are made by people who either market products, construct buildings, construct aircraft, or take a bunch of kids on a backpacking trip of many hundreds of miles over a lot of roads and up a lot of trails where there are hazards and who have been there before and who know how much fun it can be and how enjoyable it can be and what a tremendous bunch of memories you will have and great pictures and great remembrances to share for the rest of your entire life if you do it right and really enjoy it. And on the other hand, the terrible things that can go wrong if you just are tempted to reach up and grab a hold of the wrong switch and do something just for the fun of it, like a booger, like a kid that doesn't have any sense about keeping or preserving something, but instead wants to destroy it. So he said, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life, verse 19, that both you and your seed may live. I said, you're forced to choose. 
because if you say, I won't choose either way, you have automatically chosen the wrong way by neglecting to choose the right way. I have a choice every single morning when I get up. You do too. When to get up? That's for opener. What do you do next? Well, in my own case, I can't wait to get in there to brush my teeth because I can't stand. I don't know how these ads uh, do it. I see TV and somebody rolls over, good morning, and then they kiss real passionately. Oh, boy. Then I like the other ads where, where good morning, and she rolls over and he says, ah, and runs to the bathroom and gets the scope and comes back and gives it to her. I don't know. Sometimes they overdo it, I think. But every single day, every hour of the day, you are faced with choices, and that's all true right on down through life. You make choices about what you're going to do. Your brain is involved. Your character is involved, and that's what it's all about. Now, if you were going to hire someone, who would you hire? Would you hire someone you couldn't depend upon, that you thought might steal you blind, who was indolent and lazy, or would you hire someone you thought was trust trustworthy, and loyal, and honest, and so on. Well, you know the answer to that. Let me tell you about my brother-in-law, Tony Hammer. This is, I think, to our shame in America, because America is rapidly becoming a service-oriented society. Americans now want positions, not jobs. They want instant wealth, not long, painstaking, careful work, thrift, and eventual material blessings and benefits after they have earned it. They pervert that word by coming on with one of the money funds and saying they earn money the old-fashioned way, or make money the old-fashioned way. They earn it. That is the biggest lie you've ever heard. It's all simply manipulation of interests and so on, and they earn in the sense that a lot of people are sitting there with calculators and mentally getting a lot of information and following the stock market, and they're buying and selling and investing. I haven't proved them or tested them or tried them. I don't know how to move around in all of this heavy equipment. And David put them all away from him and took his shepherd's staff, probably a polished staff of hard wood, and chose five smooth stones. Interesting that he chose five, not just one. There was no braggadocio there. He took five out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had, even in a script. And his sling was in his hand, but it was the kind of a sling that works like that. It wasn't a slingshot with two hands. It was a one-handed sling of the kind that kids know how to use, and I used to use when I was a kid. I think they still make them. His sling was in his hand as he drew near to the Philistine, and the Philistine came on and drew near unto David, and the man that bare the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and reddish and of a fair countenance. And the Philistine said, Am I a dog? He saw that stick or the stave that David had, did you come out to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come on over here and I'll give your flesh to the fowls of the air and the beasts of the field. I'll cut your carcass up and let it rot out here for the buzzard. And David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to you in the name of the Eternal of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defiled. This day will the Eternal deliver you into my hand, and I am going to smite you, and I'm going to take your head off your shoulders, and I'm going to give your carcass to the host of the Phil and the, of the host of the Philistines this day to the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Eternal saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Eternal's, and he will give you into our hands. 
And it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David ran toward the Philistine. Took that sling and a few times and smack. And uh, there was a helmet, and the helmet only had one small opening. And that rock crunched right into the bone of his head and embedded itself in his brain, and he fell right over on his face. He wasn't dead yet. He was just like in a deep coma, totally unconscious. David didn't have a sword, so he ran. Shield-bearer had dropped the shield and run by this time, no doubt. Grabbed this sword, which you will find in the Bible later on David used, and it was a great, huge sword with two... You had to swing it with two hands, and he just chopped off the head. And he grabbed the thing by the hair and went dragging it back up the hill and came up to Saul all out of breath and sweaty and dirty. Still had four rocks left in his shepherd's uh, bag there. And dropped the head right there by Saul. He was still carrying the sword. Saul promised to give him his daughter as a reward. You read the ensuing chapters, like verse 14 of chapter 18, And David behaved himself wisely in all his ways, and the Eternal was with him. Read about how Saul tried to kill David, and David said, I will never lift up my hand against God's anointed. Read of the terrible things that Saul did to David, and how when Saul died, David cried and wept for Jonathan and Saul, and eulogized them, saying they were like eagles, and how great they were, and how beautiful and lovely they were in life. These were the qualities of character of a man who was mentioned in the 23rd chapter of Jeremiah, the 30th chapter of Jeremiah, mentioned by Jesus Christ to the Pharisees, David, whom I will raise up to you, he is going to be your and my king in the millennium under the reign of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This young boy who kept the sheep, who killed a lion and killed a bear with his own hands, had qualified to be the king of Israel. He was a man who sinned. He was a man with certain character flaws in the event of Bathsheba and the illegitimate child that God allowed to die. But he was also a man who could repent when the sin was shown him and repent with broken heart and cry out to God as he did in one of the most famous and beautiful psalms, Psalm 51. He had qualities like loyalty. He would not lift up his hand against God's anointed no matter what he did to him. Humility. When he was chosen, he said, Who am I? I am the least of the sons of Jesse, of the least family in Israel. I'm not qualified to be king. He was circumspect. He knew propriety. He knew how to act under any given situation to do the right thing and not to be some odd man out, to act unpropitiously. He had incredible courage. He ran toward the giant. He had faith because he said he knew God was going to deliver the giant into his hands. And above all, David had love. When you read of the tremendous affinity and the camaraderie that David had with Jonathan, a kind of a love that David was never to know, even though he was married several times and had many concubines, the closeness that he enjoyed, the camaraderie that he enjoyed, was not unlike that of some Vietnam veterans of whom we hear, and some of those in World War II, who developed such a closeness between other men in a battle that they would literally throw themselves on a grenade to spare their buddy's life. That is the kind of a love that is totally self-sacrifice beyond anything that we can understand if we haven't really been there and 
shared the kind of experiences that would bind two human beings so closely together that one would give his life for the other. None of us is going to make it into God's kingdom without character. There are some great examples in the Bible. Jesus Christ seems to be such an example that none of us could ever begin to get ready to approach. The Apostle Paul seems to be such a righteous example that none of us could ever aspire to that. I like the example of David. I see his weakness. I see his moment of covetousness and of greed, of lust. I see his tearful repentance. But I see that he was a man of the mountains and the fields, a man of wild creatures and gentle little lambs and sheep, a man of loyalty, of heart, of courage, of love, a man who could repent when he had sinned, and is called in the Bible a man after God's own heart. Building character is what it's all about. Character is this. It is the ability to know the difference between right and wrong and to force yourself to do what is right. Every time I flew that Falcon, the choices were in front of me. Many things that I could do wrong, and I would die. And many things that I could do right, and I would survive. And here I am. I never once reached up and just tried to flip a switch to see what would happen. Of course, by that time I knew all the switches and what they did, and I wouldn't have done it anyway. But how do you think I would have fared if I'd had that kid next to me that was trying to rip my signpost out of the ground in that cockpit while I'm at 39,000 feet, and his hand is in reach of the fuel cutoff and the flaps and everything else in that cockpit? I'd have been a little afraid. If David had been my co-pilot, I would not have been afraid. 